Hey, all you crazy cats and kittens out there. This episode of the podcast is with Hank Thompson. Hank is a comedian, animator, editor, producer, and podcast host. He worked at the Young Turks, editing comedy programs, primarily the Jimmy Dore Show, eventually becoming the head of publishing. He currently hosts the Winners and Losers podcast, and he was also a co-producer and the head editor at the Motherfucker Awards, uh, which is the satirical awards show that Chris Ryan and I co-created where we celebrate corporations that fuck Mother Earth. I can vouch for this guy as one of the best people I've ever had a chance to work with. And I believe that he's doing freelance editing and producing and possibly animating now. So if anyone out there needs someone for any of those tasks, Hank is your man. Um, We talked a lot about politics, talked about social organizing in this episode, um, and he's just a sharp dude who deserves all the success in the world. Please give it up for my friend, Hank Thompson. Let's do it, man. I've been looking forward to this. I feel like every time I talk to you, it's basically a podcast. Agreed. We both yeah. speak in paragraphs, and then at the end of it, we're like, <laughs> shit, we should have been recording. Yeah. Well, we, uh, after the Motherfucker Awards, we had that big meal, or we went to the hotel restaurant. We sat, but we sat for like three hours, and we didn't record it. Like a couple of assholes. We had a conversation without trying to record or monetize it. Like, what kind of jerks were we? How have your conversations with Kaj Larson been as well? So w- right before we started recording, your um, Kaj, who was who's a Navy SEAL um, and uh, news correspondent, he presented uh, the fire category at the Motherfucker Awards this year, and now you've been working with them uh, since yes. it happened. Um, so this is recorded. We're, this is the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. let's do it. Yeah. So uh, wonderful. I'm. He's such a nice guy. He's got that thing where. Um, when people say someone's really nice, it's usually kind it's a little bit, it raises the hair on the back of your neck slightly. Cause you're like, what are they actually saying about that? Nice. But then you meet Kaj, you're like, dude, you could totally be a much bigger asshole than you are. Not that he is an asshole. <laughs> he's oh, but he could be. Um, yeah. Well, he's like a, a Navy seal with an eight pack and then yeah. also a super sweet dude. I'm convinced right. that it's, it's because he works out like three times a day and his endorphins are just so high that it's like real nice. I've met those right. people who are just like, in, you know, they're, they're always moving. Like I'm going to go do a boxing class and then go do yeah. CrossFit and then do a beach workout. And they're just always high on that from moving all day but his energy doesn't feel disordered though it's pretty steady and it's comforting like it's a good you just feel good being around he's got that he's kind of got that labrador default (laughs) which is great so but really cool easy to work with um uh, just an interesting window into um the career he's had as well like just having some conversation with him so uh 
very, very interesting. And thanks for hooking me up with that guy and, and for running the motherfucker awards. I, that was uh, something I was proud to be a part of. Well, you are the behind the scenes engine. I don't think that people realize just how much work uh, an editor does. Um, I think that it's it's a little bit like, uh, I don't know, writers where people are like, oh, yeah, we just write this thing real quickly. And then writers like, "Okay, yeah, I'll have that back to you in about a year because (laughs) it takes so much, so much longer. You have to stare at a page for eight months before it starts working. Yeah. yeah, well, there's there's the creators in L.A. who are in front of the camera, and they're the ones who tend to get all of the praise and, you know, people all gravitate towards them. But then there's this whole industry, which is you know 99% of it, which is on the other side of the camera. And they're the people who are the animators and the editors and the producers. And it's this engine that most people don't get to, you know, peek into very often, but one that you've lived in for a number of years. Correct. Um, and credit to uh, Ben, the guy who did the graphics. He did the, the beautiful golden statues moving around. And that, that's a type of wizardry that's far beyond my abilities. Um, I I was happy that I had like a background that you were looking for, uh, political uh, consciousness and awareness. Not that you had to agree with my opinions, but like I've been paying attention to politics since I was a teenager, working at the Young Turks, just every day producing essentially a mini documentary that I was worked on a show called the breakdown where you found new YouTube clips and news stories and headlines. And so I'm also a self-taught anime, you know, so I have all this sort of skill that I was able to offer as well as the political kind of, um, uh, awareness. Like I had the, the, the Rolodex of clips that to look up the search terms. And I it, actually, in a previous iteration at the young Turks, like about seven years ago, I was, um, the head clickbait writer there for a while too. So, um, so not just words, um, not just video is something I say. I'm was that, this, was that your job word. description head clickbait? It was top bullshitter. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was the master manipulator of, uh, clickbait didn't you is tell a me very that, weird. I, didn't I you tell it. me that you got in trouble for one clickbait article that you yeah. wrote yeah. or something? What was that? <laughs> All right. So yes. Um, there was a, uh, so yeah, I started at the Young Turks to like work on their comedy division and come out of that. Uh, like I did stand up and short films and blah, blah, blah. And, um, so I was working doing stuff like that, but they figured out I can write and they're like, Hey, try these, these, these write, you know, try writing the, uh, wow, Kyle, we've got to edit this part of the podcast. So I can't speak. Um, we want to try you out, see how you do. And I screwed up by being really good at it. And one of the stories was about within like the first week or two before I realized it's not trying to score funny points here was, um, Jank and Anna had a discussion about abortion after 20 weeks. So some story about that. And they didn't agree completely on whether after 20 weeks or not. I don't know what their positions were, but they had a nice little discussion and it was a good video. So I wanted to try to attract people to clicking on that. So I wrote the headline, abortion after 20 weeks. Is it hot or not? And then (laughs) I guess it's not. (laughs) Apparently not. Very not. (laughs) No, uh, That's but, one uh, of those uh, subjects, but hey, yeah, yeah. You, you, well, you're in the comedy world, so you're used to trying new stuff out in front of an audience of fifteen or twenty people, and then having them gasp and being like, "Ooh, okay, might not go back to that one." But then yeah. when it's a headline and it's fifteen or twenty thousand people, uh, it's a much bigger gasp. Yeah, come on, I've performed for up to twenty-two people. Okay. <laughs> right. Give me a little credit here. I did. I tried pretty hard. Uh, but yeah, millions of people see those headlines and that's what's, it's such a strange job to do clickbait professionally because, um, you're, 
you're like the packaging on the product is how I always sort of conceptualized it. It's like if, if whatever you just cause I also designed the thumbnails and then all the SEO and the keywords and the description and stuff. So whatever you decide and there's no, I mean, they can override you, but it's not like there's an approval process. So you're just sort of stocking the shelf with how, however you decide to, to design the packaging uh, that can make an enormous difference in the amount of people that come and click on it. And you, you're, you're trying to reveal what's in the story without saying what's in the story. You're trying to like um, emotionally challenge people with those you won't believe and the try not to smile. You'll, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll fart. You know, like the, like these sort of manipulative ways of challenging people to uh, get them to click on the video. And and uh, it's a frustrating job though because when you do a good job, that means you were best at manipulating people. And it doesn't. And I, I didn't like doing it because I felt like it was a total waste of the the jet fuel that kind of drives my creativity, you know? So I would be exhausted by the end of the day of doing that because you brainstorm 20 headlines per story or whatever. And uh, yeah, well, I forgot what we were talking about. Oh, well, I always see the ones where it's like seven things that you need mm-hmm. to know about, you know, Mitch McConnell or it, yeah. there's a, a numbered thing. Yeah, it's yeah. become so important. I mean, for authors too, I was listening to uh, David Sedaris on a podcast yesterday and he said that he's just constantly thinking about book titles. It's just like an awareness that he has when he's looking around in the day. He's like, okay, let's explore diabetes with owls. That sounds like a good book idea. (laughs) Yeah. People don't think about it. One of those unconscious things. Right. Double patches, corduroy, smoking jackets, weird pipes for cigarettes for some reason. And Uh, so, so you got involved in politics as a teenager, and then you started working with the young Turks. How did your, politics evolve um through the course of of that time like one thing that really stood out to me when when you and i met was um how much you uh, just understand the system and and more particularly your um understanding of uh of campaign finance which was a real point that we wanted to underscore in the motherfucker awards you know make it somewhat beyond partisan politics where we could just talk about how these campaigns are funded and how, you know, a, a politician, you know, won't do anything for you unless you pay them was really the simple point that we were trying to make. And I was really heartened with the um, kind of depth of understanding that you had around that issue. Wow. You really built the pressure up on that one. Thanks. I appreciate the compliment though. Uh, Yeah. (sighs) It's transactional. Like, that's the thing I think. I think two things people don't realize are it's a purchase. You're not Coca-Cola doesn't need to express itself to uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. You know what I mean? Or to all the other senators that they buy Uh, and pick a company. You're not just picking on Coca-Cola, but like any company, they aren't just trying to say something because they're feeling chipper and they have a little, they want their voice to be heard. They're buying something. It's one of the best returns on investment you can do is to is to control the rules. Uh, politics is about who writes the rules. And so the, oh, the other thing that I think people don't understand is how shitty people are. And I don't mean that in a cynical, all humans are, are crappy. But when you, we have these big systems of um, patronage and the further away you get from your in-group, from your core of people who you see as worthy of your attention or of your alarm, right? Like if you, you care about those, you know, and the further away you get from that, the, the more harm 
you're able to tolerate imposing on others. So politics, especially in America, it's opaque. It's intentionally um, complicated. The tax system, for instance, I think is a great example of like keeping things messy so that an industry can exist in order to deal with the mess. Uh, in other countries, they just send you your taxes on a postcard or in an email that says, here's your thing. If you object, you can go deal with it, but otherwise sign it. And, you, and it takes three minutes to do your taxes in most countries because they already have the information. Here, Which countries? Uh, like Switzerland is the example I think I can find articles for. Challenge me on it. Um, but I know that in Northern European countries, basically, the, 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 uh, where uh, competency is valued as a, as a trait for a government. Um, but in, in like H&R Block, in America, I don't know why I'm getting into the tax thing right now, but H&R Block lobbies the government to make sure that these rules stay complicated and esoteric so they can keep charging for it. It's absurd. That's just a small example. But uh, people um, tend to you – know, human beings are good. Like our, our default and our instinct is I wouldn't hurt somebody. I wouldn't do what they're doing. And politics lets you displace the pain from your immediate surroundings, especially – this like capital city sort of hunger game style uh, world where we've got these, you know, ruling class and the, prof- and the managerial class that supports the rulers. Uh, they are benefiting greatly from the system and the voiceless, the workers, the people with, with po- it, um, stricken by poverty or people trapped in these lower economic layers, their voices are they're They're invisible. They don't exist in terms of what the government prioritizes. So um, I, I think that the, the government, uh, or at least uh, that kind of corruption trades or one of the things that supports it is how much people assume that people aren't as bad as they really can be. I'm not sure if that made any sense. So Very well. No, definitely, definitely said. I, I set you up and uh, no, you did well on that. You know, two of the groups that we worked with uh, to research the, the motherfucker nominees uh, were – um, Lawrence Lessig's group. Lawrence Lex- Lessig is a Harvard Law professor who runs um, an organization called Equal Citizens that works on campaign finance reform. And the other was a group called Represent Us that's run by a guy named Josh Silver. You sent me that video just recently mm-hmm. that Represent Us did. I, I think they're one of the more comprehensive groups out there. And uh, in the video, they they said that in the last five years, the 200 largest companies have spent billion dollars influencing government but they've been rewarded 4.4 trillion dollars in tax support so speaking to one of the best returns on investment you can have if you are one of those huge companies you it's just a business decision why wouldn't you exactly you it'd be especially if you accept the sociopathic mandate of permanent or of eternal growth and require in, in the, the way capitalism insists that a company must show better quarterly profits than the last year or else it's failing. Like I, I, I went to school for business. One of the first things they teach you actually, what I remember the first thing they taught us about was double taxation, which was like, I just remember thinking like, wow, what the fuck does that got to do with business? That like day one at a, at a university to t- learn about business. Um, but uh, they teach what you is that double taxation. Well, just that you are uh, corporations pay taxes and then individuals pay taxes was basically what they were saying. It's like, yeah, you have income. I mean, at every level of society, whenever money flows from one entity to another, somebody takes a little scraper and scoops off a little bit for themselves. So oftentimes that's the government. 
oftentimes it's like your uh, financial advisor or your accountant or your lawyer, you know, people or your agent or whoever your whatever industry you're in. Um, it's rare that money moves around without it being taken or without pieces of it being pulled away from it. Um, so anyway, uh, what the, the idea, yeah, I want to hear more about the idea of, of sociopathy being connected to oh. perpetual growth. I think that's a, a very big idea beyond politics. And I've heard you talk about it um, uh, before. How, how did you come to that idea? And um, just, well, uh, just tell me more about it. Sure. Um, I, I highly recommend this one show I, li- I listen to quite a bit called Citations Needed. Uh, I'd say they probably come at things from a lefty perspective if people are cautious about that or whatever. Um, but they, they're very thoroughly researched and they recently did an episode about they kind of take tropes and sort of just like break them apart and say, well, why is this working? And then they go through the history of it all. It's, it's really informative. They recently did an episode about the GDP. Um, unfortunately, I can't think of exact quotes from it right now to, to further inform us, but I uh, highly recommend people go listen to that one about the GDP and how this measure of society's productive capacity doesn't include home, like uh, home care or domestic labor or work people do that uh, is off, off the books that as well, but like all the different behaviors of human beings that add to a a fulfilling life, like joy or pleasure or relaxation or leisure. And like, none of that is involved in, in, in GDP. GDP is just about pure numbers. And to some degree you can only, it's easier to measure things that are quantifiable than things that are less quantifiable, like emotions, like happiness, right? Like those sorts of things. You can only really be assessed via interpreting surveys, which is imperfect at best. But um, the GDP is this dominant figure that we all look at, and it's gone up and up and up and up and up over the decades. But, you know, diseases of despair are increasing. That means addiction and suicides and the various ways that um, mental illness can manifest itself out of depression, out of um, desperation and stress. Uh, And, you know, the, the point basically is like they... GDP is a term is a measure of capitalist health of are the rich people doing well? And similarly, you can make the same, a similar case for the stock market. I think something like 80% of um, all wealth in the stock market is owned by the top 10% of the country. I'm not sure if those numbers are exactly correct, but it's nowhere near the same or the amount that it's, it's position in our media would make it seem like, you know? So uh, it, it's kind of a coup in a way to, get a society to completely only measure or, or, or to, to, to form its economic, um, let's say, uh, pride or it's how it measures itself uh, based on whether or not on a measure of are the rich doing better. So if GDP goes up, suicides go up. Well, they don't care about that part, but the GDP rising, that means that America's working and the country's doing great. But it's not. It's not. I, I, I personally believe that an economy's purpose should be to reduce stress and to actually make parenting as easy as possible. I think that should be the goal of, it, of an economy. I think the, the, the whole point of a society should be to make people have stress-free childhoods, as weirdly as that might seem, because stress-free, at least the minimized stress, maybe you can never eliminate it. But like reducing a stressful childhood makes for a lot less assholes in, when they become adults. And sociopathy and a lot of these decisions that we're seeing at the very top where, you know, you'll have uh, a a corporation, you know, fund a 
a politician to deregulate, let's say, environmental laws so that you can destroy the Arctic, you know, and things that, you know, most most people who have had experiences in nature, most people who want to contribute to the betterment of society would never do. Um, Right. But you see these concentration like deregulation. Fundamentally, my understanding of it is that it it just concentrates wealth and power uh, into the hands of fewer and fewer people, which we see now, you know, more than ever in in Citizens United allowed, uh, you know, corporations to give unlimited amounts of money to uh, Mm -hmm. politicians in the form of campaign contributions and ads. Um, And uh, even the term deregulate. Sorry, go ahead. Go for it. No, well, no. The, the term deregulation itself is, and I'm not saying you're choosing to frame it by that way, but like the, it's a very Frank Luncey and he's the right wing uh, pollster who like the, you know, figures that he's the one who came up with the, instead of calling it the estate tax called the death tax. Like, I'm not sure if he came up with deregulation. I'm not saying that, but like, was the he the language, guy who, al- who also came up with uh climate change versus go- global warming? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. He does focus groups. He, 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 he cut, he's got very yellow teeth too, for some reason. <laughs> Side point, <laughs> but uh, who am I to judge? But uh, he um, he can kind of come off as somewhat reasonable. He's done some roundtable things with different groups. It's not like he's uh, just one of these, you know, uh, just got to be completely evil all the time, like Steve Bannon or something like that. Um, but he is uh, working for the empire. Yeah, he's definitely like he'd, he'd be he'd be the guy that said, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't call it the Death Star. Let's call it the Love Moon." Right. <laughs> Better branding. Yeah, <laughs> we, we need on, Hank Star- in there battling him <laughs> with the clickbait titles. You're like Luke right, Skywalker, right. and yeah. he's Darth Vader, just coming up with yeah. one better title after the next. You won't believe how much force was disrupted by the murder. Hank's of like, no, it's the rape star. He's like, no, it's the love moon. <laughs> Don't call it the rape star. People don't like that. Right. But you're raping other nominate. stars. Yeah. But it's a lesser rape star. So you should <laughs> pick the lesser rape star, not the not the big rape star. That's the that's the choices that we'll offer you. We're gonna settle on the freedom star. Right. People love freedom. Gotta People get love that freedom. freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well but, and that uh, is go for it. Uh, well the deregulation thing, it's like the it tricks like people kind of intuitively don't like rules. So you hear the phrase deregulation is a good or, you know, people sort of uh, approach that term as if it's a goal in itself. But the actual goal should be what makes sense. Too many rules is bad, but not enough rules is also bad. And the way people who wield that term as a political cudgel use it is to trick regular folks. But meanwhile, what they're really doing is writing the rules themselves to benefit themselves. Like these things aren't complicated. Whoever writes the rules will benefit from the rules. That's a society right there. In our country, in America, the very, very wealthy and their extremely well-paid attorneys and lobbyists, they write the rules and they want to keep it that way. If in my fantasy scenario, uh, more of a utopian socialist kind of situation, everybody gets to have a voice in who writes and, and the rules that are being written. We still need rules. You're still going to have to have regulations. Um, and when people bl- bristle at the idea of rules, I always like to just point out, look at the popularity of sports. Isn't sports all about rules and fairness and, and, and uh, uh, a, justi- a justice system built into it? Like in football, like there's a referee on, on the field when he has got he or she has uh, people 
there's a justice system there. There's a review process, but it's heavily rule-based because people intuitively also understand fairness. Fairness is extremely built into, I think, genetic code. I think we're genetically coded for for uh, feeling fairness and, and for feeling upset when things are unfair. If you've there's ever seen a, the grape cucumber study with the two monkeys. No, no, I haven't. But uh, then I go, what's the, what's the two? I'll finish real fast and let you get your point. So these, uh, I talked about this on my show um, I think it was the seventies and damn it. I'm sorry. I don't know the search terms, but just search for grape uh, monkey research or cucumber, grape monkey research. And so they uh, have a simple task of like, uh, they gave the monkey a rock and then they has to give it back. And the reward is a food. So there's two monkeys in cages right next to each other. They can see each other. The first one gets a cucumber. No problem. Happy to have the cucumber. The next one, they give a grape and everybody knows grape beats cucumber, right? In terms of just sheer, uh, hedonism of the exchange. Clearly. So they give the, the second one, the grape and the first one gets pissed. And I know we don't all speak monkey, but we speak body language and he starts like hammering his hand and he's mad. And you can tell he's just like, Oh, what the, and so they, then they go back to him and he plays along with the rock, you know, task. And he, you can kind of get the sense. He's probably hoping for a grape on round two, but then they give him a cucumber <laughs> and hilariously, he takes the cucumber and throws it. He just throws it out. He whips it. Having only just seen another monkey get a grape instead of a cucumber at first. And are these higher order thinking animals? Are these uh, like supremely conscious human beings with uh, imbued with the uh, um, grace and will of a greater being that's giving them, uh, a, you know, I'm trying to act like humans think we're so special or not. We're just, we just have this burden of consciousness. Um, but I, I really do believe that fairness is kind of just intuitively built in. I, I clean fish tanks for years. I own an aquarium service. And one thing I always notice this this is bullshit, by the way, here. I don't know if this is relevant, but fish always go for the bigger piece. It's like that pizza thing between siblings. Like, you know, you can always intuitively tell which slice is the biggest one, at least as a fat guy, as a, as a recovering fat guy myself. <laughs> that's something that's been in my mind. But I think fairness, I think fairness is like kind of genetically coded, especially in primates. Yeah, the tangent that I was going to go off on was uh, there's a This American Life podcast where they go back and do a story on the uh, origins of football. And Mm -hmm. uh, you might know about this already, but um, there was a a Native American group of students who um, were at a school called Cargyle. And um, they started kicking ass. They started kicking all these other schools' asses in the early iterations of football. So all these um, new trick tactics were implemented by the other schools. Like there was one where they would have uniforms with a pocket inside, and they would just put the football inside the pocket and then start running. Um, and there was a guy who started implementing all these rules of fairness um, to make the game of football um, better, you know, more more of a... equitable game um and his name was pop warner where pop warner football comes from yeah um the the i wanted to just go back yeah and you uh you covered a lot right there um but that's what i do um i wanted to talk about the distinction you know between capitalism socialism and crony capitalism um, a lot, so socialism is a dirty word in a lot of circles. Um, and I, I wanted to, you have a good understanding of it. Can you just, I guess, go, go through your, sure. Yeah, I have an emer- your argument. I have an emerging understanding of it. 
Uh, It's not something I was taught in school. They don't teach socialism or socialist principles in American education. Um, And actually, this kind of ties back to uh, a question you'd asked earlier, a part one of one of your questions about my upbringing in politics, too. Like, I grew up in a pretty standard American Midwestern suburban Chicago upbringing, conservative dad, shotguns, but but politics wasn't like a big part. Like some families really identify it to use a, a newer term. Uh, within their uh, how they exchange or how they partner with the entertainment television that they consume. So some, for some people, politics is just like what they watch on TV. In my family, though, my dad was a conservative guy. Um, there, I wasn't really exposed to like liberal or hippie principles or anything. So I had to kind of internalize some of that. So that's sort of the starting point. Like for um, Christmas when I was 13, my dad gave me a shotgun, a Remington 12-gauge shotgun. Uh, great, beautiful, beautiful weapon. And I was in the, a member of the NRA as a junior member of the NRA in my teen years. But my brain started booting up around that time and started thinking things through and just kind of was like, I don't know if I like what I'm reading about this NRA business here. This would have been in the mid 90s. And um, so my I've evolved from sort of a rebellious teenager, a kind of just seeing bullshit, but not really sure how to categorize it. And then eventually it's like, OK, I guess I'm sort of a liberal person you start to consume media or you know it starts to inform what you choose to ingest right that's sort of, we all kind of bubble ourselves up in our own little bias yurts um and over time i, I you know into my 20s and i was running a business in chicago and then like i but i'm super into like progressive politics and looking for something because there's not a lot of progressive outlets especially back then like let's say early 2000s mid 2000s and young turks was was one of the few that's what started my long history with them leading up to this past year where i got laid off and um also the union drama that went down you know, i was part of the union movement there that what got real messy <laughs> so we can talk about that later if you want but um over time i've become more and more i've, I've been pulled or i've swam myself more and more left like it just things start it just makes more sense to me as you start to really understand power i think that's the kind of thing that i i would rest my um politics on is getting a grasp and and everything seems to clarify this too of how power works in that people who have power want it they want more and they want to prevent others from getting it it's kind of that straightforward in a way so over time, I've become, as well as the the, the, the rationale behind um, collective thinking, and even to be honest, like keto, doing uh, changing my diet drastically. I've had great health improvements since then. Uh, a few years back, and I used to kind of reject that thinking behind like the paleo way of eating. And I'm not trying to start a big discussion on all that nutrition stuff. You could probably have, you know, centuries of podcasts to, to fight over nutrition. But um, the rationality behind paleo started to click for me in a way like and it applies to everything else. Like why? Uh, meaning basically like, well, we should probably eat the way our ancestors ate. Our bodies are designed. They were our bodies were evolved in a certain set of conditions when these certain types of foods were available. Therefore, it makes sense that we're probably best conditioned if we eat something similar. And I do a, a keto version of that. I do like a lazy keto version of it. Um if I were to get married, I would probably tighten it up. You know, I look good in my dress, but um, the, that, that kind of rationality works for politics in my opinion, if uh, in an emotional sense, right? Like I really think that, so I've, my own personal story, we've dealt with a lot of depression um, and mental illness in my family. Um, I have a very dramatic uh, 
thing with my mom would probably make a great movie. There's all kind of, we involuntarily commit it. You know, it's, it gets pretty intense. There's a lot of, you know, wild, uh, why like wild as if wild that, that's not the right word like wild on e like i'm on a beach show <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not quite that kind of wild but um i think that that like kind of like looking at history and or looking at uh, or at least taking an understanding of of hunter, hunter gatherer and actually chris ryan a uh, friend of ours he, he did my show years ago too uh met him through the young turks and uh he helped a lot too in kind of sort of informing this it works with sex it works with all these like what the there's a tension between our instincts and modernity there's this this uh feeling this sort of uh um subtext i'm not sure if that's the right word of emotional pain and emotional motivation because i th- i really think that generally we can intellectualize our way around most problems and solutions and intellectualizing things is good but really, when it comes down to it, emotions are what drive behavior. Um, like with money, like intellectually, I want money. I'd like to have a lot more money than I have. But it's not because I want money. It's because I want the emotional relief that money offers you and the emotional opportunities for positive emotions. So I, 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 I sort of come at all this from a, um, a systems perspective, but trying to sort of and it's 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 by its own nature sloppy, but trying to sort of inject an emotional system into how we should behave. And if you look at our, our uh, ancestors and the way hunter gatherers made do and with the, how communication developed and how you know, language emerged from this uh, evolving primate in the African trees and in savannas, uh, we were a group animal. There's nothing is indicating that we weren't group animals at all. And our modern, like all you have to do to imagine Sorry, is this answering your question? I feel like I'm just... No, off. it is. I think that you're going to get to socialism <laughs> eventually. So I'm, I'm well, continuing well, to let you go around this. I, am, I, I not, trust you. I, 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 no, with most guests, I would have interrupted you by now. Yeah, but I, sure. I can, I can <laughs> sense that you're doing a large circle and it's gonna you're going to stomp the land in. With, right. uh, I, I can sense that you're going towards egalitarianism. Uh, and how our ancestors were fiercely egalitarian, um, yeah. and how that then informed your understanding of setting up rules in society to to benefit most. But I, I do think that you know, the, as I said in the beginning, socialism is a dirty word. So I just want you to right. kind of define that and how you came to that that understanding sure. and what it actually looks like. Yeah, it's not so much that uh, like this is evolutionary. Um, emotional stuff I'm talking about from our, our group origins is about like, Hey, we should all go live on communes and just be like, let's try to be like the way we were that those days are long gone. We're not getting back to that, but it's more about ex- trying to kind of explain where so much of this pain comes from. Uh, like loneliness, the loneliness is a huge epidemic in America right now. Um, I'd say probably globally, but people are uh, and, and depression and addiction and all these different ways that people um that these kind of uh, vast emotional systems are uh, propelled are generally because it's in conflict with, with the way our instincts are ordered and our instincts were forged through all those years of evolution, bitch, however many. Um, so yes, egalitarianism is great. <laughs> just, um, but so bringing it up to socialism, I guess, uh, you know, let's, do, let's define the terms then capitalism, I'd say, and this is going to be a little sloppy here, is a system of uh, organizing resources and 
people, which are a resource, into productive capacities, and then uh, emphasizing private ownership and private decision making about where the profits or about, about how to do it, as well as where the uh, result of the work goes. Roughly, right? Uh, you know, in a pr- pretty broad, generic sense, socialism is a uh, incorporates more of uh, similarly. It, 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 it's not about not producing things or not organizing into large groups for a specific task or a goal. If anything, that's what human beings do extremely well. But it's about um, making it more fair as to where the surplus goes, where the where the creation of all that work goes. And, 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 and it's also about maintaining um, dignity for people, is emphasizing the emotional safety and emotional security, because that's what having money is. It's emotional security. Uh, and uh, in a way that uh, prioritizes human fulfillment and human decency. And, and, and hopefully, you know, like in a utopian sense, every single person on the planet should be able to fulfill their human potential. That doesn't mean everybody should be an opera singer or a rapper, as if that's one of the two things people aspire to become. Um, but uh, the, uh, the only kinds of pain that should exist are heartbreak, grief, um, an occasional accident that's really stressful. But like we have the technology and the power to eliminate poverty, to eliminate hunger, to undo a lot of the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ghosts and bad ideas, memes, let's say from the past, like shame, like guilt, all these different weird systems of control that are sort of imposed on a society. Uh, yeah. you keep right. slapping your hand against the, uh, the, oh, am I making noises? I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, you're, you're making your points emphatically. And I think right, you're good. using the palm of your hand, which isn't good right. for audio. Um, I will disable my gesturing feature. Um, so I don't problem, think I'm actually answering your question clearly. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Well, I, you, um, cause it's, you're we getting can contextualize it into modern societies if you want. Yeah. To. I mean, well, one, one thing that we've talked about, um, before as well as the difference between seizing the means of production and not, which I think is an important point that you're uh, underscoring is that, you know, a lot of people see socialism as, as communism or socialism slipping into communism where all of a sudden the government is the one producing a nail and a government is the one is the, is the one determining how much that nail should cost. Well, what's the, the value of a nail? The value of a nail is determined on, by how much the person who needs that nail needs it. You know, if you really need it, that that nail is worth quite a lot. And that's the power of the free market is you have people determining the cost of goods and services, which tends to um, produce a lot of innovation. Um, But I think that what you're talking about is not, not seizing those means of production, but the surplus going to various services that we already have in some capacity already, right? So like one one aspect of this is like the fire department is a socialist uh, department, right? It's something that we've determined that, you know, we as a society work better if um, we have a, a, an, an agency or a department that comes to our house if and puts the fires out Versus better like, than like a capitalistic competitive system like what they used to have competing fire departments right tell me about that well 
I think it's highlighted. You can see it in gangs, gangs of New York, where the two fire fire companies show up and they start fighting over uh, outside of building. But uh, yeah, like there was a time where you had to pay insurance. I think, I, I, but I know that they, it wasn't always just a part of society that there was a fire department you could, you know, ostensibly rely on. There were companies that offered fire uh, quashing services or fi- whatever fire departments did during those times. And there were multiple companies, though. So it was a confusing mess. And at some point, civilization, societies, probably started on a small scale, said, hey, maybe it makes sense that we just have one in the city that everybody can rely on. And that's we'll work and try to build out capacity to make that as effective as possible. But, yeah, fire as an example of what like where fire department um, or some a service that society benefits from that doesn't have to be a profit making exchange. Um, That said, though, like. The way the word socialism is used, and I also want to be very clear, there are much better people out there in the world to explain this stuff to you as, as well. <laughs> and I, 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 I'm sorry for putting you up on like... No, no, so, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm just saying that... Hey, um, please explain the history of humankind. Right. Well, <laughs> Easy question. Knock it out of the park. Done with that. Uh, no, I'm just saying like it's it's a big topic, and these are uh, massively complex systems and like the so for me partially too about my own story is like i'm new to this as well like i'm that's kind of like kind of the thrust of my show uh is like i'm learning it and sort of sharing it as i go along too as well i just so i just don't want people to think that i'm trying to i think i'm representing what socialists want to say and what they want to believe and think um but I appreciate I, you exploring it, though. I think that oh, I, I'm clearly flay, flailing my way through these topics and um, have come in from a very back door. But um, yeah. I think that it's it's important to at least try to understand and not just um, you know get so scared that you're not willing to explore it because you know you'll have a lot of people pointing fingers at you if you start to ask a few of these questions. Um, but one one thing that was illuminating for me was. Um, when I understand understood that we already have a partially socialist society right now, it's just socialism for the rich and powerful. If we lived in a truly capitalistic society right now, uh, a lot of these industries would be failing completely in 2008. It, when the banking crash happened, those banks would not have been bailed out. They made risky investments and they should have failed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're being propped up by the government, but it's just the direction in which that money is flowing. And right now, right. you know, you and I are getting, uh, you know, $1,200 checks in the mail. Uh, apparently I mean, you got my, you got, did you get yours? Good for you. Yeah. They had the um, wrong middle initial. They had the wrong middle initial. So I'm hoping it deposits and I don't get arrested <laughs> or something crazy <laughs> or scamming that. I don't know. Yeah. But the um, majority of this money is going to those top 200 companies that have put in um, all of their investments over the year to ensure that uh, the bills are going to be written in their favor, which I have a huge problem with because yeah. rather than you know, all this money trickling down to uh, people that really need it, who are going to be put out on the fucking street if they can't pay their next bill. Um, it's just being hoarded and deferred and put into offshore bank accounts. And it, and it just continues to concentrate that wealth and power. Right. So exactly. And that's uh, the people who control media generally and people who control uh, cultural output are rich generally, you know, people who have distribution into movie theaters and radio and all these, I mean, the internet has been a very 
democratizing force. There's a lot of bad parts about the internet, no doubt, but it's a much lower barrier to entry for elevating someone's voice. So that's what's created. So there's this, this churn and this din of noise that comes out of the internet, but our culture is shaped by what billionaires decide we get to consume. And so people have been conditioned to think that uh, capitalism is the natural and that's the only way and that we're all just have to be capitalists and that, I'm sorry, you said something that made me think of a thing and I totally just lost track. Well, I said crony capitalism. I said that we don't live in a truly capitalistic society right now. And if we did, those risky investors would be fucking locked up and their, their companies would have failed. Yeah. So yeah, it's, a dis- and- it's a disingenuous argument when people just say socialism versus capitalism. It's, it's Agreed. really annoying. And, yes. And we've been conditioned to be ashamed when we ask for help or when we need help. Means testing, means tested programs, Medicare, Medicaid, all, like a lot of the ways that uh, I know that the, the requirements for Medicare, and Medicaid vary and states have different, you know, different governors have different influence over how they, you know, accept the funds or not, blah, blah, blah. It's complicated, but Rich people don't seem to mind being getting massive amounts of, quote unquote, welfare from the government. The military is a service to wealthy people. So much of what the military does, all that spending, it's over 50 percent of the federal budget. I was looking at some stats this morning about it for 2015, I think is what the the year I was looking at. But it's it's frequently uh, the majority of, if not always, the majority of federal spending. And that's not because you and I are under threat. As Americans, we need that much money spent. That's a giveaway to the defense industry, but also it maintains access to resources for global corporations that pay the government for that service. And the government provides them with very profitable defense contracts uh, to those specific defense contractor companies. But also that, like, that's a form of, quote unquote, socialism, if we're going to use it in that sense. I just, But I was trying to clarify earlier, um, and not to say we don't need any military, I think, you know, I want to help I'm not trying to say that I, I'd like a world where no military was necessary. That, that seems like a pretty reasonable goal. Um, if, if unrealistic at this point in, in human history, but, um, calling the fire department socialism though, I, a lot of socialists would probably object to that. Not because it's about pedantry. Uh, it's just that like, there's a more specific kind of notion of socialism as, um, uh, just a more democratic way of, uh, of, um, empowering people, uh, especially with like democratic socialism, for instance. I highly recommend the lectures of Professor Richard Wolf with two Fs. He's a really good speaker, gives these great little um, like lectures. He's a university professor. Um, he studied with Milton Friedman from the Chicago School of Economics in the 60s. He's a highly accredited guy. He's not just some quack that uh, me and the socialists left are you know, enjoying. Um, so he breaks a lot of this down, as well as Marxism, too. Um, and one of the key features of, I I would say, modern socialism is that what we would like to see more and what I think more people would agree to is um, more uh, control over their lives via democracy in the workplace. That is to say, unions, worker co-ops, or um, uh, worker representation on, on boards and things like that, and perhaps other innovative corporate structures that might come up in the future. One of the things that people in a capitalist system are used to, so it seems normal, is working under a dictatorship. You don't get to decide when you go to work. You don't get to decide when you're done. You don't get to decide. I mean, you can decide to quit. They always leave that. They always dangle that out there. Go ahead and if you you don't have to, you know, you're free to leave whenever you want and go jump into the, you know, vicious 
maw of stress, uh, the unemployment tiger that will slowly devour your body because America intentionally doesn't provide a social safety net, a robust one. I think that's what we're seeing right now with the um, um, bailouts with the current coronavirus um, crisis, because the one $1,200 check, Canada is doing $2,000 a month until it's over. Um, other countries are doing something similar. And I think what they're trying to avoid is for people to get it in their heads that the government can actually be a force for good in people's lives. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm starting to ramble, but what, like, do people not understand how ridiculous it is that your boss is in charge of your life? When you work five days a week, you're giving five sevenths of your life to someone else's success and someone else's dream. And yes, there's a wage exchange, right? That's what, that's what we understand is, um, the wage theory or this, um, sorry, the labor theory of value. You referenced, you referred earlier to uh, a nail that the value comes from, and that's known as the, the utility theory of value. And so actually, this is something I learned from one of Professor Wolf's lectures was about uh, Marxist origins. Now, Marxism and socialism aren't the same things. Uh, they are, Marxist was a socialist, but he developed his own like kind of theories and thinking about it. And this is all new to me too. And in, in, in like my education of this stuff was, I just sort of, lumped socialism in with communism and I lumped that in with uh, Lenin and Marx and like these kind of scary outsider names and scary terms and just, no, we're capitalists. Get out of here. Worship George Washington and shut the fuck up. And that's what we are. We're America. We don't do that stuff. So only in the last few years have I been open-minded and like looking at it more and um, intentionally seeking it out. But what uh, Professor Wolf was explaining is that the, uh, um, what socialism is, or sorry, what Marxism is, is actually is a critique of capitalism. Like it's a necessary part of capitalism in a sense. So where like, at least you couldn't, you can't persuade me that it doesn't deserve to be critiqued. If you think that the way things are, are fine, I think there's something wrong with you. We should improve it. And so if uh, Marxist thinking and Marxist viewpoint um, leads to a slightly better capitalism, and so little pain and suffering is reduced because of that, meaning more people have access to the resources they produce or to the profits that they produce, then um, good. And that's probably, it's probably going to be a gradual transition if we are actually going to transition to it, which. Honestly, Explain a little bit more about co-ops because um, I've, I've had this conversation with other people about the authoritarian nature of corporations. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, a different, a different way of doing things. What's an example in the real world that it could, could actually work? Uh, well, there's a company in uh, Spain called Mondragon, uh, M-O-N-D. It's like M-O-N Dragon. And uh, they're, uh, I think, 80,000 employees. They're a huge co-op uh, company. They do different types of like industrial services, and, and I think they manufacture stuff. Uh, one of their rules, I could be wrong, but it's somewhere, It's even if I'm off by one, one or two points, it'll illustrate the point is the most well-paid people cannot make more than, I think, eight or nine times what the least well-paid person makes. So it has built in uh, a kind of a maximum, uh, you know, extraction level of those who have higher responsibilities. So there is still stratification. It's not about complete equalization of, of, of people. You still need to have conflict resolution. You still need to have hiring processes. You still need, you know... Um, you still need to do all the things that are necessary when you have any group of people around. Uh, it's just that everybody in that organization gets to weigh in on whether or not the CEO should get 300 times the average worker 
or nine times the average worker. And it sort of goes without saying, we all know that given a choice, most people are going to vote for themselves to have a little bit more of what they do. Like, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, what if anybody here is hearing this and thinking this guy is just some rambly <laughs> lunatic, what he doesn't know he's talking about, or Marxism is just nothing, yeah, whatever. But let, let me present this scenario. You're given a raise. Are you excited about the raise or do you turn it down? Most people that the 99 whatever percent are very happy to get a raise. And the reason is they want more money. And, but it also means that they aren't being paid up to their value or anywhere near it. And I guess I just offer the idea that if you could have a little influence and it wasn't up to you to get the raise, maybe like they incentivize it, you work hard, you reach these sales goals or something like that. So in a sense, you can have some control, but it's your boss's call. They set the standards and, and sometimes you can't get a raise because there's not enough money to give people raises. Like there's real, there's real world, um, you know, guide rails on all this stuff. But if you could have a little influence over when you got a raise or how much, or maybe you uh, wanted to have a little influence on the fact that what you are doing the work to produce the value of the company, if you left it up to employees, they're less likely to give it all to investors, to equity investors, to pay it out in dividends to people who just bought it through the stock market. Not there's anything wrong with doing that, but I'm not saying those are bad people. That's just the system we have. But people who didn't do the work get the benefit. That's what we call stock or dividends or the way, you know, sometimes there's other ways of like splitting the stocks into, or, you know, various things. It's not always completely simple um, because that's the labor theory of value. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I realize this is all sounding very jumbled, but like, you know, you make. No, you're, you're doing a, a decent job. I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm letting you go. <laughs> I appreciate well, Jeff it. Bezos, for instance. Does he do to the, he's, he's the world's wealthiest man. His wealth has gone up 24 billion. I don't know if it's him or if it's all the billionaires, but like something like that. Damn. Sorry about that. But, uh, his, his, his net worth has gone up by billions and billions of dollars since the coronavirus pandemic started while people are suffering, dying, this mass crime against humanity in America being inflicted against its own people. Um, and the billionaires are doing great. Something's wrong there. Um, and I always try to point out, Unless Jeff Bezos is doing the deliveries, then he doesn't deserve anywhere near that amount of money. He deserves a lot. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that people who come up with these companies and quote unquote bear their risk uh, of starting a business don't deserve nothing. That's absurd. And nobody's nobody on who takes this stuff seriously believes that at all. That's just the kind of stuff that you hear from those who are trying to end the conversation. Uh if you showed me a video of Jeff Bezos doing all the deliveries, you could maybe persuade me that he deserves $190 billion. I'm not buying it though. It's actually the drivers doing the work. It's the people packing the boxes. It's the uh, people in the countries where they extract the minerals out of the ground that are producing for, for pennies a day or a dollar or whatever a day in those in, in the third world where they get a lot of the resources. It's all the people throughout the supply chain and the production chain and the uh, higher educated people who, like the, the graphic designers and the people who the engineers and people who design the machines that make the machines. And, you know, like, Everybody except Jeff Bezos is doing the work. So he should get some of it. He's certainly done a lot of work, right? No, no issues there. I would actually propose a maximum um, wealth cap, I would say. Now, this is me, not the greater socialist movement. But I, I think you don't need more than f what? what? What number? 50 million, 100 million, a billion dollars, you know? Uh, and, and the retort to that would be, well, that would stifle innovation. Like, that's a, 
ridiculous, in my opinion. Like, what would Bill Gates have done differently if his maximum cap was, if his, if his total amount he could ever own at any one time was capped at a billion dollars? What, how would that have changed any incentives he had to do anything he did during his, uh, you know, creating um, Microsoft and Windows in his garage? I've spoken with a number of uh, libertarians, and I love having this conversation um, yeah. with, with them, um, and uh, as I flail my way through it just as equally. Um, their argument is that um, y- y- when do you have um, the authority to take my wealth? And they take it as as violence against as a, against a person, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you and I are trading goods for services, um, a third party does not have the moral right to come in and extract some of that wealth. And that it's actually violence against two people, um, who are in an agreed upon, uh, transaction. Um, right. what do you say to that argument? Well, libertarianism uh, intuitively makes sense on very small scales, right? Like if I have a, a fancy shell and you have a nice stick and you live down the river and we make an agreement that, well, I'll give you my shell and you give me your stick. Hey, it's the oldest profession, isn't it? <laughs> two shells, Kyle. Come on, have some confidence. Um, my mustache ride, my self-worth keeps going up. My mustache ride price keeps going up. <laughs> it's up to $7 and 21 cents. used to be the, five. The so GDP, the mustache yeah. MP. Exactly. <laughs> um, the VIP, so, mustache MP. Well, right, right. The enforcement, the part, libertarianism breaks down, in my opinion, when the population gets too big to be enforced by going over there and arguing with them or beating them up or something. You know, you, you have to have a mediation system. Also, you're not going to deliver your fancy stick to pick up my shells uh, if uh, without a road. And did you pay for the road? Did you build the road yourself? Did you do all that on your own? Or, or maybe you exist in a society that can enable that transaction using by, by, take, by, by, by having an entity that takes the money, part of the money from every exchange, and spends it so that people can continue to fulfill those transactions. Um, so yeah, I, I just like I think libertarianism is a nice ideal. I just don't think that it works in real world terms. Um, if you have a dispute, you need to have it. Then what? You, you you the libertarian would say, well, you're free. He's free to hire. What if I want to go get my shell back from you? I show up with myself. We get into a fight. And I come back with some people. You've got your own. Pe- now now what? Now we have gangs fighting over a shell because of your nice dick. I mean stick. Come on, <laughs> it's it's like it, it, like at a certain point you have to have what's a, a more difficult thing, which is effective government. That's another part of what I think um, is lost in all this too. Is like when you're promising to do something good and create and, and create something uh, with a specific goal of trying to increase dignity and make sure that everybody has decent lives. That's a harder thing to promise because you're promising to create something. Destruction is always easier. Like it's one reason like the Republican philosophy, the conservative I- ideology of government always being the problem. First of all, government's a massive giveaway as we kind of been talking about. That's what this corruption in America is all about is buying something so the government can give you a return on your investment. But in conservatism, the, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. It's gone. Um, 
we're talking about libertarianism, conservatism, um, needing to create something versus destroy oh, oh, it. The promise this government is the problem. And so it's really easy to get into office and prove it. You don't, it's, you know, I always use this metaphor. Like it's a lot easier to miss a field goal than it is to kick a field goal. Right. There's trillions of ways to miss. There's some 15 yard. I don't know what the span is between the two yellow poles or whatever for our football fans out there. You got to do some things right to get a field goal, but you can you can just doff it into the back in, in the butt of the of the placeholder if you want. You can turn around and you can kick the ball completely opposite direction. Like there's a, it's a lot easier to to break something than to create something. So when your when your political ideology is based on creating something better, automatically you have uh, to meet a higher standard for you know how to, how do you do it and how does it work especially when you have to overcome so much propaganda that's been kind of injected into the bloodstream over all these years. Because socialism is a threat to capitalist power. The whole point of um, resisting a union is because you don't want to give up control. People in, you, you intuitively know that you benefit when people are disordered. And when people organize, I just had this experience with the Young Turks, when people organize and say, hey, we as a group are no longer going to tolerate these certain set of factors. Let's work on fixing this. All of a sudden, there's less power. That's what racism is used and all these different ways of categorizing people into, uh, that are intuitive, meaning like uh, people, um, I think we should split people up into personality traits more than color or gender, you know, because we're all we like, I don't know. I'm not sure what that even means. I'm not sure what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Well I don't, done. I don't know you know, um, you know, um, the story of, um, the French essayist Montaigne, um, when uh, I believe this is back in the 16th century, um, there were European um, colonialists coming into um, Brazil and um, they brought back a couple natives with them to show them the uh, the riches of Europe, um, expecting that then they could return them. And, uh, you know, the natives would talk about how much better European culture was. Um, and Montaigne asked the natives um, what surprised them most about European culture. And the natives said what surprised them most was that you had people who were so wealthy that they were living behind castle walls and just outside on the doorsteps, you had people who were so poor that they were starving and yet the starving people didn't rise up and burn down the castles. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. It's amazing. I, I saw a tweet earlier today, like, like how are 329 million people letting 550 people ruin everything? The Congress basically. Yeah. It's, that's also stymie. I, I think that's partially too is connecting outcomes to behavior, meaning our education system doesn't teach protest. It might, it might touch on it, but it doesn't teach how, and it doesn't teach how to lobby your local representation. You might have a brief civics lecture, but my understanding is civics education is, is very much um, reduced in terms of what's available to public schools. I'm actually uh, thinking of writing an article about effective ways to engage in local politics. Like one, mm -hmm. for example, that's super simple one is to fill out the fucking census. People have yeah. no idea how important the census is for determining uh, funding over the next decade in your community. And people yeah. are just like, ah, it's this thing I get. I'm probably not going to fill it out. Like, no, this, that's a major first step in flexing that citizen muscle. It's obviously yeah. not the last step, but I think that um, the, 
the the political movement could um, and and civic engagement movement could benefit largely from the human optimization movement in regards to how to create behavior change. You know, the the ketosis movement, right? Like they have guys like Tim Ferriss and Peter Atia and Ben Greenfield and, you know, just like masters in behavior change. Uh, and they know what will get people to, to fall off, you know, but, um, I, I, even me, you know, someone who's in, who wants to be engaged in this stuff and learn about it, it's so easy to just feel dumb and put your hands up and say, oh, all right, whatever. I'm going to throw on Tiger King instead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tiger King. <laughs> it, it's a lot. It, it definitely feels overwhelming. I think that's what the hard work, or, or sorry, not, maybe not hard, but the um, effective work of demonizing the concepts, it, it serves. The, the ruling class, the more uh, they can make socialism seem like a scary term, the more they can drop Venezuela or they can say something like that, or they, they just to confuse and to make you say, I can't, I can't do it. I got to go. Not to mention the other ways. I think a huge primary thing of a benefit, and this isn't even about um, socialism. Well, it, it relates to everything, I guess, but is time is how much fucking time we have to give to the uh, ceaseless, thirst the 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 profit lust of capitalism how much more fucking resources do we need to scrape out of the ground and and wear people down you know um there's a movement for the four-day work week i don't know if you're familiar with that much at all but that is i'm highly in support of that and it's actually one of the few um areas of progress i actually think i might we might live to see in yours in my lifetime um because the primarily because it actually all the research that shows that when you cut hours down from 40 to either 32 or some sort of like four 10 hour days, although that's not ideal, I you really want to do like either four six hour days or four eight hour days or whatever. Um, that uh productivity goes way up because people have time to deal with their stuff outside of work, they have time to pursue something that, that might interest them, they time to relax, time to catch up. And I think it's I, I think it's Google that has that built yeah. into their workday, right? And, and at every, least at certain levels, like they have leisure time for you to have that empty space to come up with a creative idea because they understand how much that benefits them. Yeah, I think that was Google Japan, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. But um, yes, it's every time it's tried, every time a company adopts a four day work week or, or a, a, a fairly without any loss of income. Like you still make the same money. That's a big part of it. It's not just like taking a one fifth pay cut. Uh, it always works out better for the company because people make less mistakes. They take fewer sick days. They are, uh, they feel a little more respected um, and they stick around. You know, it's hard to find it's hard. It's hard and expensive to replace employees. So I actually think the four day work week has a lot of upside uh, aside from the emotional, all the emotional benefits that regular individuals get, but co- because it is good for capitalism, the owners of the uh, the decision makers, the shot callers of society could possibly be persuaded into letting us do that. And it, obviously, depending on the industry, the like school, like, you know, because we have five day schools. So like if, if there's a certain critical mass, like a threshold where the whole society sort of flips into four day work week. Um, and then you can, also another way that you can increase employment is reducing hours, too. You might have to have a bigger payroll in terms of just like you have to have 40 employees now when you only needed 28 before. 
well, good. Now you have 40 people who are, now you have 12 people who are employed. I'm just making numbers up. But like, if you have X amount of hours per week, like if you're a store that's open seven days a week, although maybe we could close on Sundays. It would be really be so terrible if we couldn't all go buy condoms at 11 in the morning on Sunday. As if I haven't bought a condom. <laughs> it's horrible. I got some from the STD clinic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this is, uh, but, uh, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, that we're in a time right now where people are seeing glimpses of these different societies. It's the first right. time that a lot of people are getting checks in the mail from the government directly. Uh, a lot, by the way, Alaskans have been getting checks from the government mm-hmm. directly for years because they set up a new set of laws where they they all sat down and said, all right, we are so re- resource rich. The citizens deserve some of the wealth if we're going to be extracting these resources. So if you're a resident in, in Alaska, you get a check from the government. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's the first time we're seeing that this now on a mass scale in America. You can only, you can only spend it on bootstraps. That's the rule. You gotta go to the bootstrap, go down to bootstraps and R us, buy a good one and right. on it real hard. Yeah. Until get better. Yeah. That's but, funny. Stupid, stupid thing. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, finish it. <laughs> I think that um, to your point, we have not learned you know how to engage with government in school uh, effectively, um, and right now we are being forced to through this pandemic. For the first time ever, a lot of citizens are now going on to California.gov and they're figuring out how they can get. Um, a check, you know, and, and figure out what they can actually do. And it's, it's forcing that education on, um, you know, for, for people that had never done it before. So I do hope that we come out of this with at least a a greater understanding of civic engagement. Maybe that's a kind of Pollyannish, uh, um, attitude, but. Well, I thought I was going to be the negative one on this one. So no, uh, when the quarantine and lockdown started to come down and the virus was becoming apparent, like a big, a big deal that required this massive response, it was pointed out accurately, in my opinion, that the policies Bernie Sanders has been advocating for are the answers we need to deal with this kind of virus. There's the immediate need of like, oh, my God, we got to get people money and we should probably cancel rent, although they're not doing that. They're making sure that they're going to drain everybody's savings as much as they possibly can. Uh, it's all about gaining leverage, right? That's the power dynamics at play. Um, but a pandemic like this is one of the, of all the disasters, you want a competent government, but especially a pandemic because it's a slow motion kind of thing. It goes on forever. You really need competency in government. And we are about as at our, what's the opposite of Zenith? I'm trying to sound smart. It's not Apogee. I think that's the same thing as Zenith. <laughs> Why am I doing this? But we're at the bottom of, the, of competency right now. We have these, we have a extremely corrupt, um, intentionally malicious and uh, authoritarian right wing upswell of a, of a movement that has become manifested itself in a particularly odious person. Although it still represents a very odious ideology overall. I hope that this is, um, creating more civic engagement um and 
and I think on the local level is where it needs to happen. I think right. that that's really the only place where people can actually have um, a, a an, an impact. Um, you know, in that video that we were talking about earlier, the Represent Us video, there was the Princeton study where over a 20-year period, they asked the question, how much influence do people have on government? And they found that if there is 0% support for an issue, it has about a 30% chance of passing through Congress. If there is a 100% chance uh, uh, support of an issue, there is still a 30% chance of it passing in Congress. So there's virtually no influence that the average person has on government politics. That shifts when you get to special interests and the uber wealthy. They have a much greater uh, influence on policy um, if they're interested in getting it passed. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that a good on po- uh, entry point for people is local politics and figuring out who their their city representative is and how they can handle it, how they can tackle it on that level. Because a lot of the um, more odious policies that are passed um, that really impact you and I are, packed, are passed on the municipal level. You have an organization yeah. like the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, one of the, um, the they were the, the big winner at the Night of the Motherfucker Awards. They, uh, yeah. sweat, Alec, they were Alec, nominated yeah. in three categories, but they're coming in on the, the local level and they're doing things like making it illegal to pass a plastic bag ban because banning single use plastic ba- bags, uh, even though that's having this tremendously negative impact on you know coastal cities and uh, beaches and then tourism and it has a ne- negative impact economically um, uh, plastic bags do it, mm-hmm. for tourism and just the beauty of of cities it also has a negative impact on the oil and gas industry because plastic is derived from uh, natural gas so right. they come in on the local level and and you know there are successes that also happen on that level if people are keeping a, their finger on the pulse of um, of what laws are coming down the pike. Yeah, and I think one area that the Democrats uh, have seeded, and it's a, a massive opportunity to improve, although I don't have any faith that the current iteration of Democratic Party is going to do anything to improve it, is local influence and local campaigns. Like the, the right does a great job at that in terms of imposing their um, viewpoint on others. Um which is what, what kind of what a society sort of like is like those who show up to write the rules are going to be the ones whose rules get written. And they understand what you just described is that, yeah, on local, that is a massive part, especially since like, you know, putting a, a candidate like Bernie into, into the presidency was going to, was very unlikely from the outset. The fact that he got as far as he did indicates that his message is persuasive and the concepts he's, he's pushing and advocating are uh, resonating, especially with younger people, because the further down the generational you know tower you go, the less uh, affinity people feel for capitalism and for the current economic system. People burdened by student debt, people you know all these all the different ways that people look at their future and say, well, I guess I'm just going to work for some asshole, and then eventually, hopefully, I will have enough to um, a couple years of going fishing, and then I'll die if I'm lucky. A lot of people don't get that at all. Maybe you'll get lucky, you'll get to work at Walmart as a greeter in your final years. So, um, but yeah, I, th- I agree on the local scale. That is probably where um, these kinds of things are going to, going to turn. Do you have a, um, do you have a process of asking yourself questions to look at these systems on a, 
a bigger scale. You said earlier in the conversation that you're a, a naturally a systems thinker. And I enjoy mm-hmm. this conversation because I do think that you're continuously taking one step back and then another, another step back and you're looking at it from uh, the perspective of happiness beyond just economic productivity. You know, you take a, a, a very unique look at a lot of these systems that we take for granted. Do you have yeah. some kind of process of, of asking yourself questions when you look at a new issue or was that just something that you, you naturally did from uh, the, the point of being a, you know, gun, to- gun toting uh 12 year old. Man, the school took that gun away right away. I was like, what? It's, my, it's as tall as I am. Leave me alone. <laughs> right. I didn't use it correctly. You're supposed to point the gun at people. That's the what they're for. They're for maintain suddenly having the power of God over a stranger. Why else have a gun? You weren't supposed um, to keep it in the gun safe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We went hunting. We were hunters. Um, I, and actually I still want, I want to get into hunting. Like I, as a, I eat a lot of meat and then we could, you and I could probably talk about this too. I'm fascinated. By Come it. join, dude. I hunt pretty much most days in Santa Cruz. I spend so much, I waste so much of my time in the Santa Cruz mountains trying to hunt Why turkey it? and deer. It's not wasted. I'm, I'm being facetious. You're okay, just sitting. <laughs> hunting is like true. just sitting for long periods of time silently yeah. hoping something comes and you know <laughs> four out of five times you just get back in your car and drive home but it's very relaxing yeah. um and i do uh hunt well, with, you gotta go to the grocery store and just shoot the gun at the well i also hunt with a, a dude who's a very thoughtful guy so we'll be out in the santa cruz woods like whispering new yorker <laughs> articles to each other <laughs> The other day, we were literally out underneath the red, redwoods. Yeah, go ahead. We were, we were hunting like silently, and I was whispering the latest New Yorker article to him as we waited to hunt turkeys. Hey, did you hear Frank Rich has a new column about Star Wars? Yeah. The economic misery of the rail, railroad company. Did yeah. you hear that Michael Pollan has a new book about caffeine? Gosh, I love him. The Omnivore's Dilemma was such a delightful read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we like we like give give uh, <laughs> wild meat to each other along with Joan Didion books. Right, right. Well, you know, hunting... For me, like I, I go fishing a lot. I, well, I haven't. It, I don't really fish here in LA. But when I go home, um, my family were very fortunate. Uh, we have a, a home on a lake up in Wisconsin, and uh, great grandfather built it in like the 30s or something. It's this old wooden kind of shack, but it's a beautiful spot, and uh, it's a privilege that I'm grateful to have in my life. And I, we, but I go fishing with my dad, and there is something so powerfully like your. Um, I said a joke. No, I don't know. Call it a joke. Here I am quoting my stupid old bits or tweets or whatever. Sorry if I do that. Uh, but like a, a uh, an orgasm is this your DNA applauding. It's like, it's like mill- millennium, millions <laughs> right. of years programming to go like, yeah, that's exactly what we're here for. Motherfucker. You know, like that's what <laughs> an orgasm is. And you're, you're well, I can't get ramble about orgasms. That's my other podcast or orgasm a thon. But um, hunting is a similar thing. Not that I have an orgasm when I kill <laughs> <laughs> but there's something about catching food, growing vegetables too. It's not going to be just an animal, but like catching a fish and then cleaning it and cooking and eating it. There's something so s- deeply satisfying about that. And uh, kind of relating that to what I was saying about the four day work week and about time, because the greater point of that, and then I'm going to answer your question about where's my process. I think I have a decent, well, at least some, something approaching an answer. 
But the point about the four-day work week is that we're all so busy making rich people richer that we don't get to go do what you do in the woods with your New Yorker buddy. We don't get to go fishing as much as we could. We don't get to grow our own food and feel things that are in line with our instincts. Not that I think a whole society should be, uh, you're on your own, grow your own food, go screw yourself. But we could set up a world where leisure, like if, if you were to actually care about uh, spreading the largesses of capitalism, the productive capacity of organizing so many people into these productive units we call corporations, if you really cared about spreading that everywhere, you would, instead of hoarding the profits to the people who don't need any more profits, and they won't for millions of years, Jeff Bezos can pay his rent for millions and millions of years. He's fine. Uh, by the way, the billionaires are working on immortality. That's something they would all love. But I, I just hope that they pause immortality research until Trump is gone. <laughs> I guarantee you don't want that dumb motherfucker getting the immortality pills. <laughs> it just, just from a sheer billionaire club perspective, I guarantee he's not the guy that they want hanging around for another 400 millennia. He's got, anyway. he's got speed. <laughs> <laughs> Does he go slow? Like, is he like the flash? You know, like the world is slow when they run fast. Like, Trump's is that got how speed and diet Coke. It's basically immortality yeah. pills. I just imagine his consciousness is just like two dim light bulbs in an empty room. Like one of them is a TV, right? I said like, like one is like his, his own dim light bulb and one's a TV. And you just sort of like, exchanges photons with this television because then he sees himself on tv so he gets to like experience this sort of strange narcissistic fantasy anyway whatever <laughs> i'm angry that we have to break down that that guy's psychology it's such a curse to place into our minds and he's going to be in every documentary for the rest of time and that isn't that a distressing thought um at least until 200 years from now whatever but uh so people we time should be returned to people uh, thanks to the productive capacities of society. And I would suggest to tie it to socialism is that it's not about inhibiting um, advancement or, or, or cutting down innovation. I, I, I would actually think that when people are less stressed, have more, more time or more um, emotional health, didn't have to overcome some kind of fucked up childhood. Some people don't survive their childhood. You know what I mean? I don't mean they get killed. I mean, they develop a coping skill that might be destructive addiction or some sort of thing. And it might lead to them not making, I almost didn't survive in that sense too. I had a very difficult uh, childhood and uh, had a drinking issue for a long time. And it was, uh, it was almost a fatal thing. Like uh, the lucky of us overcome it somehow. And I'm, you know, I'm going to probably be, you know, Thanks to therapy and thanks to meditation and thanks to working on the motherfucker awards, uh, I've been able to uh, turn things around. I'm trying to give you a lot more credit. Oh, well no, done. But, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not your guru, Hank. I'm not your guru. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I agree but, 100% that you need empty space for innovation. I, I, right. Fucking, but here's I, the point. I, let me, let me, go for it. Let me put it into social terms. If people had influence over these decisions, would we work as, oh, sorry, I keep tapping my desk. Sorry, there. I, um, if people had influence over these decisions, would we choose to do it the way we do it? I don't think we would. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't. I imagine people would say, oh, uh, you mean I can have Friday afternoon off? Cool. I'll take it. Oh, I can have all of Friday off? Even better. And still take care of my family and feel secure and feel and have some predictive power, too. Capitalism is extremely unstable. 
it crashes every, what, seven, eight, ten years or something. Massive crashes that require enormous government action to swoop in and bail it all out. Who would want to live with that kind of thing? It's like now I, I would think and, and, and the history of socialism includes um, um, imbalances, too, with like the Russian Revolution of the 20s. And there's actually a lot of American socialism that is erased from education systems. Uh, meaning there's been like a lot of strikes, like the May Day, actually that originated from a strike in Chicago. I don't know too much about that exactly, but I do know it's a, it's a holiday celebrated in other countries that America doesn't because it's about worker power. Um, and uh, that's why socialists are kind of for it. But uh, I, no- I was trying to tie it all back to this pandemic. No, no, I think, well, I think, do you have a so, final oh, point? Final, final point is like, so we have an incentive structure through capitalism that, we are we look at all the innovative products and things that are made and we're pretty impressed with it pretty amazing if we had a system that wasn't about profits only as a primary driving force that was maybe about dignity first like if this doesn't increase or add to someone's sense of security stability sense of self-worth the, all the things that uh, what i mean how do you debate how do you define dignity exactly uh then you'll incentivize innovation around technologies to promote that too. But we don't have a system that promotes that kind of technology advancement. Like the vector we're on is how can we make as much money as fast as possible? Because people make rational decisions inside an irrational system. That's what people in companies do. People who work for these corporations are pretty rational people. They're highly educated usually, or, you know, they're making rational choices. And, but the failure there is that within that immediate, like we got to increase profits this quarter or else we're going to get in trouble or I need to make my bonus, is that it it, it drives uh, the overconsumption and it drives advertising, which is a way of training people to want things that they didn't even know they needed. And uh, I think advertising is kind of a ridiculous industry. I think it should be more about just communicating feet and whatever. That's yeah. Not well, to the, that, um to your point about uh, cap- the system of capitalism crashing every number of years and needing to come in and get bailed out, there's a documentary called Requiem for an American Dream. It's a, a series of interviews with Noam Chomsky, and he talks about how in the 60s you had this intense democratization movement where you had typically apathetic and, and groups you know, that were kept down, uh, young, young people, people of color, um, marching in the streets, which resulted in this wave of uh, environmental laws being passed, uh, Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, and regulation on uh, corporations and regulations on the rich. Then the blowback from that in the 70s was uh, lobbying groups being formed um, by the Reagan administration. You had a a lot of deregulation happening. um, And then you have the savings and loan crisis. So Chomsky talks about how it was the result of deregulation that then allowed these crashes to happen. Um, and we'll continue to see that the more deregulation we have. Um, you know, I, I right. was thinking about this idea of um, go for it. Well, I just gonna, please finish. Our, uh, those who are least able to endure the catastrophes, are the ones who pay the highest price. Those who have the best ability to survive, the people with money, resources, savings, all kinds of connections, all, you know, the, the rich, wealthy, powerful people, they can endure the crashes. So it's a nice feature of the system because it's like it's shaking everything up and then the prices go down on land because a whole bunch of desperate people need to, need to liquidate their only resources that they have that's 
probably potentially crashing, although housing prices, that's its own bubble yeah. and uh and where taxes anyway, are placed specifically in this in the 60s with that movement you had more taxes on the wealthy taxes on things like dividends rather mm-hmm. than the taxes that we have today where you have someone who's making sixty thousand dollars a year and they're being taxed in, intensely you know like i remember the first time that i you know you know became a young adult and then i went to the the tax office and i was like okay well i have this money and they're like well actually you don't and i remember leaving that office like thinking i was gonna throw up i was like wait what i didn't know that they were gonna take this amount of money from me i'm yeah. 20 years old um but i had- go for it well, I've had some rough years recently um, in, in terms of unemployment and um, doing Postmates and just gig work, which is, you know, when you're in your like late 30s and you're, you're so for a couple of years before uh, just rewinding like four or five years or so for about two or three years, I made about 20 grand a year, a little over than that, doing some freelance editing, animation, very lucky to have a roommate who was OK with me being late on rent because he, he does very, fairly well. Um, so I'm extremely grateful for that because i definitely should be homeless if or would be homeless but um or at least moved on somewhere else but anyway i had to pay like six grand in taxes on like 21 grand uh, or something like that and you got amazon or ge or you know you could pick pick your uh, company so many examples where they make billions in profits and pay zero so like a depressed postmates guy struggling to find his footing in the entertainment world paying six grand and uh of his 20 that he needs every bit of that. So yeah, it's, it's weighed horribly against other people. And Warren Buffett was quoted once as saying like, well, why, why should I pay less like a, a lower tax rate than my secretary? You know? So. Yeah. I, um, you know, when I first heard about universal basic income, I, the, uh, capitalist in me was like this you know this is bullshit i I, you want to incentivize people to work hard they're just going to be lazy and stay at home um and they're not going to do anything with it and uh i was having a conversation with a buddy of mine and he's like he was like you you get paid some money to surf right by patagonia and i was like yeah and i have for a number of years and uh you know it's not enough that i can sit at home and do nothing but it's been a supplement to me throughout my 20s that has allowed me to work on environmental documentaries, um, do something like the Motherfucker Awards, which isn't you know, a profitable endeavor, but has hopefully social value, and uh, you know, spend a decade learning about the kinds of things that I that I want to learn about and I'm really passionate about to hopefully be able to make a career out of something fulfilling. But that kind of stuff takes time. And I realized like, well, I don't actually think that I'm an exception to that rule. Like, sure, you might have some lazy people, but it feels better to create than it does to not create for, I think, for the the human spirit. Um, And I'm actually a great example of someone who has benefited from some supplemental income through my 20s and have been able to, to engage in some projects that were incredibly fulfilling. Right. And had you had to have a full-time job, would you have been able to surf as much or pursue those other interests and other projects? No. You'd have been just another cog and too tired to do it. That's part of the reason why time returning time to people is unlikely to happen. Now, I, I was saying earlier, I think it's likely because it's good for capitalists, but the bad part of that, the part that would be threatening to them 
is that people would have time to call them on their bullshit. Like exhaustion is a very effective system of oppression. If you're too tired or, and then you're, you're just sort of pumped, you, you know, you work so hard, you go home, you got nothing to do. You got, maybe if you have kids, especially, I have so much respect for people who raise children, not a, not a child guy myself, <laughs> not looking for it, but um, man, that's tough. There's so much energy goes into that. And, uh, but so you might have a few, an hour or two to plug your head into a internet thing or the TV at most, and you got to get up and do it all over the next day. And on the weekends, there's just no time. So like, uh, like you say, a UBI or some sort of uh, program that helps people uh, cut back on that stress would empower business creation, small business, true local in- sole proprietors and small businesses and hopefully co-ops. Like I'm actually currently trying to do like a woodworking thing. And if, if it ever actually becomes more than what it is right now, and I'm barely getting started at making videos and um building uh, poop stools using found furniture <laughs> on my balcony here in LA. Are you selling it? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm almost done with the workbench. Actually, I've been building the handle for the vice. I did that yesterday and it's oh, so satisfying. I just, I'd do you have a name it. for it? What's Bum it called? Rush Industries. What is it? Bum Rush. Rush Industries. Bum Rush Industries. Yeah. You know, the, the squatty potty, that's the, uh, the toilet stool. So I'm going to, mine, mine are called bum rushes, but I'll probably make like other things like, you know, boxes and, and smaller boxes. Um, to your point about parenting, point, if people had yeah. more time to parent well, you would also save so much money in society because we know the connection between people with fucked up childhoods and drug addicts. How much money are we spending yes. on the opioid epidemic because people are so damaged from some childhood where their parents weren't around, they didn't have time to communicate with them, you know, with with love and kindness because they were fucking stressed because they're working two jobs 6 days a week and they don't have any time to teach their kids healthy, you know, coping mechanisms and lessons through life. Even a optimal two-parent household is against our instincts. We didn't evolve that way. We had, you had uh, a mom who you knew because that was probably your primary, but you had tons of, of mother aged women and tons of father aged men in your tribe. There was no such thing as an orphan in that time. No, I wasn't there. This is like something I was like, yeah, like, like even just in our current world where what we think is the natural family unit of a one parent or sorry, a mother, a father, and children. That's not. That's actually a, a, a kind of instinctive violation too. It can work, and it's better than a single parent or no parent, right? And and depending on all the different ways your parents are exhausted by their day, by their job, by going to their, uh, you know, five, giving up five sevenths of their life to their boss's future. Um, even that can be damaging and, and like a truly fulfilling emotional, healthy development for a kid. But I don't think that's going to change. I'm not saying that we should make everybody have 10 parents, but you, you children, we, we weren't always raised like that. You were always raised around groups of other children, groups of parents. That's why there was like the, you know, as Chris Ryan often will connect it to like bonobos and sex at dawn is such a, I think a groundbreaking eye opening book for so many people. Um, we were just a big group of horny monkeys looking out for each other. We were like, I, the, the phrase I like to use is that we were camping swingers. That was our, <laughs> that's what we were. Human beings, we're, we evolved as camping swingers. Sounds like Santa Cruz. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 
Is that, is that where the swingers like to do the camping? Yeah, Santa um, Cruz, the Redwoods, oh, right, right next to where we're reading the New Yorker articles, hunting turkey. There's a commune of camping swingers. Camping swingers, see? Uh, it's, all, it's fun it's to say. It's a good name too. for a folk band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah camping. Well, I, I uh, think, though, that these are it's, – it's great that you're talking about this stuff, man, because – it will take a long time for systems to change, but you can change individual behavior immediately. And it might change some people's right. decisions, you know, as they're figuring out where they want to live and, you know, how worth it is it to live in, in, uh, you know, some box without community and, and try and make it work on your own versus, you know, getting together with other people and figuring out some, some sort of, um, you know, community-driven uh, model. I, I had uh, the founder of Guayaki on, the, on my podcast. They make the yerba mate. And uh, he lives up in, in Canada. Say that once more. What's up? What is yerba mate? Yerba mate is like, it's um, a coffee alternative. Um, it's, oh, okay. It's a, it's a, yeah, they, they, you, you make it, you drink it in a gourd. It's big down in Argentina. They have leather satchels and gourds and they pass it around. It. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Uh, but he lives on a commune up in Canada. Yeah. And he said, dude, the, the benefit that that has created in my life is, just you can't put a number on it. I have there are other families mm. with other kids and we all you know, there's a big garden and we all have our separate domiciles. And, you know, I'm a, uh, you know, the head of this big company. I travel around, but I come back to it and it's so deeply satisfying to not feel that um, chronic loneliness that so many Americans are plagued by. Yeah. Yeah. i Personally, I've always – this kind of is the answer to your question about my process that you asked earlier. I don't know if process is the word I would use. But I've always been like an outsider yeah, from a very young age. I never felt like I fit in or belonged in anything, even my family. Um, and that's a pretty common trait with people who get into comedy or comedian-type person. You know, that's sort of how I started my entertainment career is in stand-up. Um, but I've never felt – it's always been hard for me to connect with people and to find that feeling. And some people I think have a disposition where loneliness is sort of maybe an unfortunate, but kind of something that they get used to and it's familiar and it become it becomes their way and being around people would be too much for them. I have the kind of like version of it where it's like a painful grief stricken, achy loneliness, you know, where I really want to be able to connect with people, but I just, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing for me. Not that I haven't found some ways, but I'm kind of looking to get out of LA myself. I'm sort of tired of city living 10 years in Chicago. It'll be close to 10 years in LA before too long. And I want to be near trees and I want to be near, I want to be able to have a fire on a deck or in a yard and be with, but I want to, I don't want to do it alone, you know, and, I, and I'd love to do like a woodworking business and do editing and maybe some podcast. Like I have this sort of fantasy of getting some land and building, fixing up a house or, you know, cause I can build, I like to, I love to fix like, I'm a great boyfriend material, by the way. I could fix it. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, this whole make, podcast so was, was one big ploy <laughs> to get you out to any women listening to my podcast. <laughs> Hank, he's on the market. Go tell him. He's on the socialist market. <laughs> yeah, you know, are you a socialist guy? I'm a six foot three, and I might take boxing lessons so I can beat right. up somebody. If you want. Uh, he's I'm six tall, three and thinking older. about getting into working out. Exactly. Yeah. There's some abs. 
Yeah, you're not gonna. Yeah, exactly. A little fucked up in the in the brain sometimes. You know, I get the case of the sads, but that's all right. But my point is though, like this this is actually the loneliness thing. I think is a, a fundamental trait of humanity in terms of evidence for our past. Right? Like if you can just place yourself in the woods with a broken with a sprained foot. Do you sprain feet? You sprain ankles. Do you sprain other? Yeah, you can sprain other stuff. Sorry getting myself twisted there. Imagine that. Imagine being in the woods with a sprained ankle by yourself. That's, that's a horrible situation. It's potentially life-threatening. If your leg's broken, you're probably dead. Usually, right? It takes an awful lot to get out of the get out of danger when you have a broken leg by yourself. But if you have somebody with you, your whole outlook changes. If you have a group with you, you have the security of knowing that someone else has your back, that you're not alone, that when you are in pain, it will be an emergency to someone close to you. And I think that's what dignity is. To me, dignity is the feeling that your pain is someone else's emergency. And I think that's why America is such a difficult emotion. Like maybe it's almost like pollution, like an emotional kind of emotional pollution that you don't feel that here when you don't have a good social safety net. And I'm a white guy from the Midwest. So people of color, people in more marginalized communities and groups, they absolutely do not have confidence, not to speak for them, forgive me that for that. But like the idea that the government is looking out for them and it's going to show up when they have a problem is it, it's, it's not there. If you're wealthy, you get dignity because the government, your pain, even though when a rich person loses a billion dollars, but they've got 20 billion dollars or whatever the numbers are, that's not exactly an emergency, but the government will treat it like one. And so that's what I want to expand as a society is one where everybody's pain is an emergency. Cause that means that everybody has a problem that we can help each other solve. And it's not an accident that altruism is a good feeling like, like, like loneliness hurts and helping people feels good. That's, that's an indication that we are an animal that evolved that like the, it's, there's nothing there's plenty of solitary animals. We don't have to feel good from helping any anybody else, but it's because human beings are an extremely vulnerable creature by, by oneself. But when you group up and that's exactly how we evolved as groups, because we're highly social, we're almost like a distributing computing network in a way, you know, eight dudes can take down a mastodon. Well, they run them off cliffs pretty much. <laughs> That's one of the more brutal ways of hunting. You don't do that with your turkeys, do you? <laughs> get them, get them off the cliff. No, but but <laughs> you're, but you're the anecdote. There's a uh, an island in Hawaii called Koholawe yeah. where they used to ranch cattle. Uh, it it eventually got turned into a bombing range by the U.S. government, but before then, uh, it was a, a cattle ranching island, and the Hawaiians would have to. Um, lead the cattle out into boats and and kind of swim them out up onto uh, the the holes and the the waters were so shark infested that a lot of times the cattle wouldn't make it out and the sharks then got the idea oh, oh they just bring them out at this time uh, we're gonna come in and murph your cattle so what the ranchers figured out that they needed to do was get a herd of goats and run them all off a cliff on the other side of the island so that the sharks would circle the goats and then they would have to, then they would run the cattle back out on the boats at that time. Ah. Yeah. So goats are that less uh, valuable to them. Than, uh, oh, like goats are everywhere. Goat. 
every goats are everywhere in Hawaii. It's insane. Oh yeah. I've got ducks, but yeah, uh, goats are all over Hawaii. Part of my fantasy of having uh, a home in the near some trees somewhere, Colorado, Northern California, Oregon, or something like that um, is goats. I love goats. They're so charming. They've got such character to them. I worked at a barn when I was 13. It was like my first job mucking stalls. And uh, there was a goat. It was the best part. For anyone who wants to brighten up their day, uh, YouTube screaming goats. So oh, yeah. These, so these are goats <laughs> yeah. with with fucked up <laughs> vocal cords, and it sounds like... Yeah, they just sound like a dude like like on the other side of a hill screaming. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, they're, they're, well, uh, oh, well you know what, man? Um, <laughs> as this whole podcast just tur- um, you know, f- you finally stomped the landing with your uh your hey, I'm single and a great guy and uh <laughs> ploy out to my out to my I, audience. I, 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 all the time. I will uh I'll reinforce your point about group activity, man. I, I work alone a ton, man. And there are days when I'm like, I need people. Um, uh, and as cheesy as it sounds this last year, uh, before the pandemic, I joined a CrossFit gym and I would go there at 6am and do morning workouts. And there was a group of people there that I would never see as quote unquote, my community. But then we would get through these workouts, which are fucking difficult. You're just going as hard as you can. And that whole conversation of like, I can, I can't, I can, I can't, you you know, it's very vivid in your mind. At the end of it, you're high fiving with each other. And it, it benefited my life on that level of like feeling like I was part of some kind of community so tremendously. So all of that is to say, you got to get back in cautious CrossFit gym and do that. I know. Yeah. Do that before and after yeah. thing. What what was well, the, no one's there now? So I could. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. What was your uh, your idea right before we recorded that you wanted to do a before with and Kaj? after piece? Yeah, well, I wanted. So did we explain that we? I've been working with Kaj Larson a little bit on some stuff, and uh, I was hoping to um, get some free CrossFit uh, membership or something by doing a before as a fat slob pre. On his, on his podcast he's he might, might be doing something about fitness and then like six months later come back and be like hey look at me look at this shit and it's an advertisement for his crossfit business and because i know it's an effective workout i know it works i mean i've known a few people that have been into it it works great jared's out potential I have, jared I have is out hank is in <laughs> jared from subway put me in <laughs> yes quit quoting me my my act all right that's not fair um that's fine <laughs> And I have a Prius for the ladies. It's a 2012 leather seats. So come on by. Air conditioning. Buddy, we've Great been going place. for a while. This is such a fun one. Yeah. It's, I, it, I think it, you just could... summed up all of society, uh, which is uh, quite a feat. <laughs> <laughs> I tip my fro well, to you. I, <laughs> thank you. I, I appreciate your locks. If, if you see myself, I've actually been growing out my hair in solidarity. Look how weird I look with long hair. This well is the done. longest my hair has been. <laughs> I started, was, for, for folks who don't know, I'm a baldy. I started losing my hair at 19, which I believe gives me the right to talk about anybody's hair if they're a white guy. I know, I'm not going to go you're like a, I'll, I'll respect You're like the guy who wrote uh, Man's Search for Meaning, and he's in one of the um, those concentration camps. What was the guy's name? I'm, I'm spacing on it, but he, he talks about the – What was it? Ellie Wiesel? Are you thinking of an author or like? A- yeah, well, it was the guy who wrote *Man's Search for Meaning*. Anyway, he oh. ta- he talks about um, being in a concentration camp and how certain people would have 
the beard of despair and they would stop cutting it. And you could always tell who had given up hope by who didn't cut their hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but it's Hank's partially bald. So he's never given up hope. <laughs> no. Oh, well, I'm, I'm just not bald on the outsides, like a <laughs> children's soccer field. It's just worn out in the middle. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I haven't felt my hair feel the wind in, in 15 or 20 years. It's absorbent. It's actually long enough to be affected by gravity now, finally. So it's like I can feel my hair moving around. It's honestly really annoying. I think on the other side of this, this pandemic, we got to cut this bullshit about caring about hair, staining it, whatever, no, no, stay, what do they call it, Dye, dyeing your hair all the time, all the money that people spend to cut their hair. Fuck it. Just do like once a year cut. We'll cult member this shit out of this thing and. Everybody needs to quit panicking about their stupid hair. For any photographers out there, please do a portrait series of people (laughs) and their hair in this pandemic. I I think it's interesting. It is kind of an interesting, like, like meter slowly filling up, you know, if you're fortunate enough to not have to be on the front line, I feel terrible for the healthcare and uh, other people that are taking risks. Buddy, where can people check out your podcast? Oh, sure. Uh, winners and losers on Instagram or Jesus Christ, iTunes. <laughs> um, I do like my political. I, I started in 2010, so the archives go way back. But I do a, like a political solo kind of thing um, that I call that perfect union. So if you want to hear me ramble about politics, I also do like a kind of a nerd YouTube channel called Suck Professor, uh, where my roommate and I were both big big geeks we talk uh, movies and shows generally we also do some video game stuff we're not real aggressive on that we just finished the westworld season but we're not that's sort of just a, another place for podcasting but there's like over a thousand videos on there over the years and um instagram and you know if you tune into the podcast i'll keep you updated on the uh, poop stools and you can buy something that i made with hand tools on my balcony i want one of those i'll link to all your stuff below and as soon as you come out with a shit stool i'm gonna be customer number one let me know oh i'm a big fan of the squatty potty yeah it's part of my it's if i have a religion it's squatty potty it's like putting on glasses for the first time if you if you needed them like it's amazing and that's not an evolutionary thing it's like your body likes to be angled just so so my <laughs> suggestion and then i'll let you go and we're trying to end the show seven inches is the like kind of like the standard height find a box it doesn't have to be perfect size but just find a box of six to eight inches and sit on that or put that on under your feet while you're squeeze you squeezing one out and you will have a religious experience hank thompson you're black. <laughs> well done, man. That was great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. That's our show. I'm going to play out with a song called Nine Lives by Nate Maingard. Nate listens to this podcast and he sent me some tunes. If you're a musician and you want your music played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. I'd love to play it. I'll give your band credit in the show notes below. Maybe send some new listeners there. And if you want to hear, read some of my writing, you can go over to my website, kyle.surf. About once a week, I write a short story. I just released one called Into the Winds about a recent solo backpacking trip that turned bad in the Wind River Range in Wyoming. You can head over to kyle.surf to check that out. That's also where you can sign up for my monthly book club. Hope everyone's having a great day. Get in the water, whatever body of water you are closest to, and I will see you all next week.
fascination for material medication? Should we blame our education for this fucked up situation? Fucked up situation. What is it that we fear? Come close but not too near. Let's smile and shed a tear for the songs we love to hear. The songs we love to hear. All I need's a patch of sunlight from where to watch the world run by. You tell me life is a rat race. I'm no rat. I've got time. This cat's got time. This cat's got time. This cat's got time. This cat's got time. What brought us to this place? What is it that we chase? Our future has a face. Full of wonder and grace. Full of wonder and grace. All I need's a patch of sunlight from where to watch the world run by. You tell me life is a rat race. I'm no rat. I've got time. This cat's got time. This cat's got time. Nine lives, nine lives.